0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Welcome to FedLife, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin.
2: Welcome to the show. A new month and always a good time to review your savings and investment strategy. The markets continue to swoon, so it's also a good time to remind yourself that long-term, if you stick to a solid strategy, that million-dollar TSP account will add up for you, too. Financial advisor Art Stein gave me some perspective on the 35-year-old program. Is it possible 35 years of the TSP?
3: Yeah, and it's great to have that long-term record because we can really learn a lot from it. Investing is really a long-term proposition. People should look at it that way. And what we see when we look at the three TSP funds that have 35-year records, so that's the G fund, which is short-term bonds, the F fund, which is longer-term U.S. bonds, government and corporate, and then the C fund, which is a S&P 500 index fund. It invests in the stocks of large U.S. companies, 500 of the largest. What we see is that the C fund more than doubled the return of the bond funds. And, you know, that's hugely significant. Now, the C fund was, of course, much more volatile, had more years where there were negative returns for the calendar years. Of course, the G fund really doesn't have volatility, and the F fund is volatile, but by a fraction of what you see in the C fund.
2: In many ways, the G fund is just a little bit better than a mattress.
3: Well, it's a lot better than a mattress because, one, it has a rate of return and the money in your mattress does not. So the average annual return for the G fund over 35 years was 4.6% a year. The F fund was 5.5%, but the C fund was 11.9%, almost 12% a year, which is you know, a great rate of return. Now, 2022 was extremely unusual in a couple of different ways. One, it was the first time both the F fund, which is the bond market, and the C fund, which is representing the stock market, both declined in the same calendar year. And the declines were pretty major in 2022. Even the bond fund was down 12.8% and the stock funds were down even more. But there was a first time they were both down in the same calendar year.
2: So is it fair to say that if the C fund was down, whatever, 13, 14 percent? 18. 18. That still would not have wiped out even two of the years of the
3: 35 or of the prior several? No, because, you know, good years for the TSP are like 2020 and 2021. The C fund was up 18% in 2020 and 28% in 2021. Those were great years. And actually, 2019 was up 31%. So huge increases. And yeah, it was down 18%. But if you held on and you had started, you know, say even in just in 2019, you still came out way ahead.
2: In other words, on the long term, they go up significantly, but it's more of a ratchet effect than it is a straight... Curved.
3: Yes. And the way I describe it is it's like a person with a yo-yo walking up a hill and the yo-yo's going up and down and up and down. But because a person is walking up a hill, at some point, even when the yo-yo is at its lowest point, it's still higher than it was at its highest point further down the hill. And that's what we've seen with the U.S. stock market. So if you don't invest, that makes you the yo-yo. <laughs> Yes, don't be the yo-yo.
2: And just a point of historical question: What did people invest in before the TSP? Because the TSP is not quite as old as the four hundred one k plan that it's part of.
3: Yeah, well, the TSP really started, you know, with the G fund, which I think started in nineteen eighty seven.
2: What did federal employees have before any they of that? They
3: didn't have a four hundred one k. It was uh, CSRS. And they had this great annuity and the government didn't feel the need nor should they have felt the need to offer them a 401k in addition. But then, you know, they wanted to switch to a less rich retirement package and give more responsibility to employees to plan for, you know, their own retirement security. So then they started a 401k plan and that mirrored what was happening in the private sector where there were a lot of companies that had great retirement packages, great pensions. Of course, the government calls the pension the annuity, but they got away from that because they could not afford it. It's a very expensive thing to do.
2: We're speaking with certified financial planner, Art Stein, and getting back to 35 years of TSP, what about some of the other funds? There have been foreign stock funds and some of the others. How have they done? Again, over the long haul.
3: Yeah, the I fund is not done as well as the U.S. stock funds, although there were certainly years when it outperformed. The small stock fund is the S fund, and it invests in most of the U.S. stock market that's not in the S&P 500 it has not done as well at this point as the C fund, but there are certainly periods of time when it did better than the C fund. So I urge my clients who are in the TSP to invest in both the S and the C fund and even the I fund because the I fund uh, now foreign stocks that are in the I fund actually are cheaper than the C and the S fund. And cheaper means that if you look at things like price-earnings ratios, it's better for the stocks that are in the iFund. So presumably that would make the iFund an excellent long-term performer.
2: And the S-Fund then sort of has the flavor of maybe a little more Silicon Valley, a little bit more startup. Companies that haven't made it to the big stock exchanges yet might be on the DASDAQ type of
3: flavor. Well, I wouldn't say that so much because the big companies that are in the NASDAQ or in the S&P 500. You know, you're talking about, you know, Amazon and Apple and things like that. You know, it could be like a major trucking company. It could be a manufacturing company. It could be a lot of different things. It could be a drug company. So, you know, hopefully they're going to do so well in the future that, you know, then they become large companies.
2: And because... Your advice has been frequently, don't try to pick stocks. That's why you're in these funds, because you have professionals that have Mm -hmm. lots of input in order to tailor what those funds are made of to get the best return for the investors. What should people look at economically just to get a sense of what the funds might be doing in the future?
3: Extremely difficult to do, Tom, because, you know, the stock market and the U.S. economy do not move because of the same stimulus. And the stock market, and this is what makes it very difficult, is a leading indicator of what's gonna to happen to the economy. So it tends to go down before the economy goes down. And it tends to start going up when we're in a recession and things still look pretty bad. So there's no like obvious clue as to what the future performance is gonna be. And you can see that because I mean, there's no one who has consistently predicted what's going to happen in the short term to stocks. And as a result, don't try and forecast. You know, you can look at 35 years worth and see that, you know, if I'm investing in the stock funds, I'm going to have some bad years. The number of calendar years where the C fund had a negative rate of return over the last 35 years, there was seven years. So 20% of the time it declined, and 80% of the time it had a positive rate of return. Well, those are pretty good odds. You know, you'd like those odds in Vegas, right? You'd like those odds at the track if you bet on horses. But people don't see that. What they see is, hey, it could crash, and when it does, what I'm gonna read in the press is this could be permanent, you know, this could be the end. And it's going to go on. That's when you need to be investing.
2: And much is made of the number that rises and falls of people that have at least a million dollars in their TSP accounts. And if you look at the numbers carefully, it's basically the longer you're around, the more likely you will be in that millionaire so-called club. If
3: you invest appropriately.
2: Yes, that's right. And if you look at the very small accounts, those are associated with younger people that haven't been in the government so long. So exactly. the eternal lesson is borne out. There's no magic to becoming a seven hundred, eight hundred thousand or $1 million dollar TSP holder, except consistency, longevity, and keeping the nerve not to yank it out when things gyrate.
3: Yeah. And I have met several people who very long-term federal employees who you know basically kept their money in the g fund and of course they basically have what they started out with with you know some small increase over time and all of a sudden they're doing their retirement planning and they turn around to the tsp account it's like not sufficient it's not sufficient then of course it's too late
2: but first, people do have an annuity. It's just not the same as the FERS people, so it's not their only. Plus, they get Social Security.
3: Absolutely, and and for the people who can live on Social Security and their annuity, they don't have to worry about the TSP so much. But the problem with that is that the annuity from the federal government for FERS employees has a, as you know, a diet cola cost of living adjustment. So anytime inflation's over two percent. They are not fully compensated for inflation, and inflation in the United States is normally over 2%, so they're looking at a pension, an annuity, where the purchasing power is declining over time, and it means that they then have to fall back on the TSP to make up the difference.
2: So bottom line for 35 years, then, is... Stocks look good. Certified financial advisor Art Stein. You can find the interview at federalnewsnetwork.com. We'll take a short break, and when we return, recent doings in the land of federal employee unions. This is FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Tamman. We're going to review some of the recent activities on the federal union's front. We start with Environmental Protection Agency, organized employees, EPA employees, and union leaders urged agency officials and Congress to make some serious changes to the agency's workforce. The American Federation of Government Employees, which represents nearly 8,000 EPA employees, just held a rally outside the agency's D.C. headquarters. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman was there, and she joins me now. Drew, you're getting to be a rally regular here for the different union-backed issues in town. What are the concerns now with EPA? What do AFGE and the employees say is the basic problem?
1: Tom, it's kind of a combination of two issues. They're saying that they are facing kind of a lagging number of staff or employees in the agency compared with a growing workload that is largely coming from added funds under the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. So specifically during fiscal 2022, EPA had about 14,500 employees, and that is a 20% decline from the highest workforce numbers that the agency had. Back in 1999, they had about 18,000 employees. So there has been a little bit of improvement in staff numbers in just the past couple of years, but this is not enough to, as AFGE says, as some employees are saying, to really tackle the increasing workload from these new bills. AFGE Council 238 President Marie Owens Powell said that just bringing staff on board is also not going to be enough. We are facing a staffing crisis. We need to not only hire new staff, but the bigger problem from our point of view is retaining the staff that we have. We have 3,000 employees that have more than 30 years of experience. Of those 3,000, 1,500 have 35 plus years of experience. We simply cannot afford to have that wealth of knowledge walk out the door.
2: Right, and that's something that we're seeing in a lot of agencies, you might say. And what about the employees themselves? What was their sentiment?
1: A lot of the EPA employees who were at the rally and that I spoke to said that they are feeling, I guess, sentiments of burnout, exhaustion, just trying to deal with these increasing workloads. And some were considering leaving for other agencies or the private sector just because the work was just piling up. I spoke to an EPA employee, Teddy Bruce, who attended the rally.
0: I can speak from experience. In my office, there are people doing the jobs of one and a half to two employees on a regular basis and no uh, relief in sight. There's certainly significant burnout in a lot of employees and uh, exponentially more talk of transitioning to different agencies.
2: Yeah, well, there's no fun in working when the to-do list seems to be never going away and you can never get on top of that pile. And so what about the agency? What does management at EPA say now that they're you know three years into the Biden administration?
1: Management said that they are trying to work with these union partners to try to listen to their concerns and make adjustments wherever needed. AFGE held this sort of week-long rally in D.C. to uh, try to raised concerns about the staffing issues at the agency. And the a spokesperson from EPA told me that agency managers met with union leaders during that week-long rally. The agency is also currently onboarding about 1,800 employees. That would be to support the legislative work under the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act. That's adding billions and billions of dollars of Funding and therefore work at EPA. And those 1,800 new employees would be on top of the 15,000 roughly EPA staff that are appropriated for fiscal 2023. Although AFGE has said that there are staff who are looking to switch agencies or walk out the door, EPA managers and the spokesperson I talked to, they pointed to data from the Partnership for Public Service that showed that EPA attrition levels were actually among the lowest government-wide over the past couple of years.
2: Sure. Some of it's very specialized work. And, you know, probably the agency would like to have more people to relieve that workload, but you can hire the people you're appropriated and legislated to have as billets, and pretty much no agency can go beyond that. And AFGE was also talking about career ladders and pay, too, which is different issues from the workload. What happened there?
1: So AFGE leaders that I spoke to, they said that the way that the agency is basically ranking or setting up the career ladders for some more tenured employees is different from those who are new or just coming on board. So, for example, inspectors at EPA, those who have been around for a while, can reach a maximum of GS 13 or 14 on the general schedule. But when new inspectors are coming in, they're being capped at GS 12 or GS 13. So that, of course, impacts pay for those positions. And it's not just inspectors, it's several types of positions at EPA. And the union and some employees that I spoke to said that basically that is causing some retention issues and trying to issues with trying to bring people on board as well. I spoke with Matt Costelli at the rally. He is a legislative advocate for AFGE Local 3607, which represents EPA employees in Denver.
2: Our pay is shrinking, not just because of inflation, but because new employees, career ladders and salaries are being capped lower than their peers doing the same work. So same work, different pay. It's not fair, it's not right. And we need to be able to attract, retain, Uh, the best of the best to do what we do, right? We address
0: safe drinking water, clean air, uh, addressing Superfund sites. And to do that, we need more staff that are paid fairly.
2: Sounds like an omnibus rally there because also on the agenda was remote work. And I think we know how AFGE stands on that. They are pretty much backing remote work when possible, aren't they?
1: Absolutely. AFGE has spoken up advocating not just for EPA remote work, but for all agencies. And they've also criticized legislation like the Show Up Act. So this is not a surprise that they're also pushing for remote work and telework opportunities for EPA employees. The union actually negotiated with management a new contract provision that would allow remote work when it could be approved by a manager and an employee requested a remote work position. And there are a lot of employees that are making requests, but AFGE says they um, are sometimes being dismissed without a good reason for management. But as I said, AFGE is pushing for more of these opportunities, that, and they argue that it worked very well for EPA during COVID.
2: All right, so some real tough issues there between management and the workers at EPA. What comes next?
1: They are still working through contract negotiations for their collective bargaining agreement. There's a couple areas where they're struggling, such as the remote work aspect and the issue with promotions and career ladders, but it seems like from both sides labor and management. They're both saying that they do want to have a positive partnership here, and they're trying to kind of work together to get through some of these issues. Owens Powell, who's the Council 238 president at AFGE, she said it's really going to be about working with the agency. We made it clear to them, this is not a protest. We are here to help the agency and move the agency forward. If the agency fails, we fail. We truly want to partner with them. We truly want to move this forward. The way to do it is to help our employees.
2: All right, so the contract will tell all, won't it? Yep.
1: Yeah, well, we'll see how things progress from here. But it seems like, as I said, both kind of want to move in this positive direction.
2: Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And another federal employee union expects a challenging environment for the IRS, in this case, as House Republicans target its funding. That's a top priority for the National Treasury Employees Union, which this week happens to be holding its annual legislative conference. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman was there. He's got some highlights for us. Jory, what other top-of-mind topics they're worried about what they call clawback?
0: Yeah, I mean, what NTEU has been concerned about since the start of this Congress with the new Republican House majority is their top priority, or one of their top priorities, which has been clawing back this money in the Inflation Reduction Act. We're talking about the $80 billion the IRS got as part of that legislation for a decade long rebuilding of its workforce, modernizing its IT, things of that nature. This came up as part of a media roundtable with NTEU. What they're concerned about is What is going to be on the negotiating table for upcoming debt ceiling negotiations? NTEU President Tony Reardon said that they are concerned that federal workforce issues in general are not on that bargaining table. One thing that Reardon said that he doesn't expect will be on the bargaining table is that $80 billion, but he did say that lawmakers are perhaps looking at giving the IRS flat or reduced annual budgets for the years ahead to sort of... Claw back some of that money that did happen in the 80 billion dollars, the Inflation Reduction Act package. And here's Reardon saying that in his own words. They're not going to be successful, really taking the money directly from the Inflation Reduction Act. But instead, what they'll do is over time, continue to attack to the extent that they can the um, annual appropriations and sort of in a less direct way, claw back the money.
2: And that's Tony Reardon, the president of the National Treasury Employees Union. Any other things we need to know about what's on their concern for their employees coming up, Jory?
0: Well, for the broader federal workforce, NTEU is championing a couple of things. The 8.7 percent pay raise that is being proposed in the FAIR Act. They are also looking at expanding what's currently offered to federal employees in terms of paid leave for situations when either they or a loved one are encountering a serious medical emergency Those are some top priorities. Of course, NTEU does more than represent Treasury employees. They actually represent Customs and Border Protection. And what they're looking at there is addressing a shortfall of officers at CBP. They're saying that's close to an 1800 shortfall of officers at that agency, as well as agricultural specialists at CBP. So really speaks to the broad range of issues that NTU focuses on.
2: And that's Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And that's it for this week. As always, email us with what's on your mind and we thank you for listening. We'll see you the next time. I'm Tom Temmin.
1: Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.